Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about the word of appearing where it shouldn't. And we'll talk about two things that make English weird compared to other languages. This segment is by Ben Yagoda. One day last week was a red-letter day for me. I was reading in my local newspaper an article about the deal by which in 1947, the Cleveland Indians bought Larry Doby's contract from the Newark Eagles, making Doby the first African-American to play in the American League. The price was a seemingly low $15,000. However, the article quoted a baseball historian, Jim Overmeyer, as saying that relatively speaking, it wasn't so low because no other black player fetched, quote, that good of a price at that time, unquote. The reason I was so excited was that the word of was in brackets. In other words, in the interview, Overmeyer had used the phrase, that good a price, and in the article, the reporter added the word of in brackets, meaning to correct the grammar, make the meaning clear, or both. The construction in question is intensifier qualifier, adjective of a noun. For example, not too big of a portion for me to eat, not that hard of a decision to make, not too good of a time, and so on. It's traditionally and technically non-standard English, otherwise known as wrong. But I had observed it gaining popularity for some time, first in speech and then more and more frequently in print. I was fascinated by the newspaper example because it represented a milestone. The reporter felt it was so self-evident that the of was proper and good that he felt compelled to correct Overmeyer's actually correct sentence. The prolific writer on grammar and style, Brian Garner, coined a name for this construction, intrusive of. It has a pretty long history. Presumably, it derives from a similar construction, which is unimpeachable, noun or pronoun of a noun. For example, prince of a fellow, giant of a senator, not that much of a problem, and enough of a delay. Following of a with an adjective is historically more an American thing than a British one. It seems to have begun in the 19th century when of sneaked into phrases with one particular adjective, considerable. Mark Twain writes of the time a brick came through the window, quote, and gave me considerable of a jolt in the back, unquote. And in his 1946 autobiography, William Allen White writes of someone who was, quote, considerable of a socialist, unquote. Coincidentally, the first example I've been able to find of the intrusive of moving beyond considerable also occurred in 1946. An article in an Indiana prison publication called The Lancer had this sentence, quote, Ben was too good of a guy to lose that after he'd been dreaming of it for so long, unquote. The usage didn't catch on like wildfire, though. The next instance I could find was in the transcript of a conversation in a 1964 academic psychology article. Quote, I had an outline that I was supposed to give, but didn't think it did too good of a job, unquote. A sort of milestone took place in congressional hearings five years later, when a federal administrator testified, quote, his finances aren't in too good of a shape, unquote. With the count nouns job and guy and Twain's jolt, the intrusive of feels okay. 
It feels like more of a stretch with a mass noun-like shape, but the correct formulation, aren't in too good shape, feels even more awkward. That calculus leads to the case of a baseball manager saying of a relief pitcher, quote, he didn't have too good of stuff today, unquote. According to Google Ngram Viewer, which tracks words and phrases in the Google Books database, the intrusive of started to gain ground on the standard form in the decade of the 2000s, but it's still far less frequently used than the standard form. But note that Google Books consists of only printed sources, and the glory of the intrusive of lies in colloquial speech. The corpus of contemporary American English, which includes television transcripts, movie scripts, and blogs, shows that in the years 2015 through 2019, the intrusive of was used only one-third less frequently than the standard form. If you consider speech alone, I'm pretty confident it's now more common. It's easy to understand the appeal of the intrusive of. As noted, it derives from a common and correct form, that much of a something, as in not that much of a stretch. The extra of adds emphasis and punch, always desirable qualities. However, the newspaper quotation I opened with is an outlier. The intrusive of may one day be acceptable in edited publications, but that day is not here yet. In his latest reference work, Brian Garner calls it unrefined usage. Even the famously tolerant Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage concurs, saying, quote, It's a spoken idiom. You will not want to use it much in writing except of the personal kind. That segment was by Ben Yagoda. Ben is the author of How to Not Write Bad, About Town, The New Yorker, and The World It Made, and many other books. You can find out more about him at benyagoda.com and on Twitter. This segment is by Adam Shembri. Is English weird? Many of us might feel this is true when we're trying to explain the complex spelling rules of the language or the meanings of idioms such as it's raining cats and dogs to someone who's learning English. Teaching or learning any language is, however, never an easy task. But what is weird language anyway? Well, as linguists, we generally aim to be as objective as possible in the science of the human language. We view ourselves as language scientists who make hypotheses about how humans use language and test them against linguistic data. Unlike so-called language police, we believe it's important to avoid, where possible, making value judgments about language. Some computational linguists have used data in the World Atlas of Language Structures to explore, tongue firmly in cheek, which languages might be considered the weirdest. This was not just a value judgment. They systematically compared the information in the World Atlas of Language Structures for 239 languages from different parts of the world. Their aim was to find out which languages had the largest number of features that differed most from other languages. In this survey, English came in 33rd out of 239 languages. So it definitely has more atypical features than more than 80% of the other languages in the survey. Critics have, however, claimed the survey was too biased and that it only used a few features of the world's many languages. Indeed, there are aspects of English that are not unusual compared to many other languages, such as its dominant subject-verb-object-word order. But let's look here at two features of English that might, in fact, be unusual. 
English probably sounds a little strange to many speakers of other languages. According to the World Atlas of Language Structures, the average number of distinctive speech sounds in the world's languages is about 25 to 30, known as phonemes. Piraha, an indigenous language spoken in the Amazon region of Brazil, has an unusually small set of phonemes. It has eight consonants and just three vowels, I, A, and O. In contrast, Tata, also known as Ko, is a language in southern Africa which has more than a hundred phonemes, including many different types of click sounds. Sign languages, such as British Sign Language and American Sign Language, don't use sounds at all. Signs are instead composed of combinations of hand shapes, movements of the hands, and locations on or near the body of the signer. English has more phonemes than many languages, with around 44, depending on which variety of English you speak. It has an unusually large set of vowel sounds. There are around 11. According to the World Atlas of Language Structures, most spoken languages only have between 5 to 6 vowel sounds. This is part of the reason that English spelling is fiendishly complicated, because it's inherited five letters for vowels from the Roman alphabet, and speakers have to make them work for more than twice that number of sounds. English has some comparatively unusual consonant sounds as well. Two sounds, those represented by the TH in bath and bathe, respectively, are found in fewer than 10% of the languages surveyed in the World Atlas of Language Structures. In fact, these two sounds are generally among the last sounds acquired by children, with some adult varieties of English not using them at all. English grammar is also sometimes unusual. Englishes use varying word orders to distinguish between questions and statements, meaning that the subject of the sentence precedes the verb in statements. Take the phrase, life is a box of chocolates, for example. Here, the order is subject, life, followed by the verb is. In the question, is life a box of chocolates, the order of these elements is reversed. In a World Atlas of Language Structure survey of 955 languages, fewer than 2% of languages in the sample used English-like differences in sentence structure for questions. More than 50% of the languages added a question particle to differentiate a question from a statement. In Japanese, for example, you add the question particle ka to a statement to turn it into a question. The second most common strategy in the World Atlas of Language Structures was to change the intonation pattern, such as changing a falling intonation pattern for a statement to a rising one for a question. In contrast, Chalcatango Mixtec, an indigenous language of Mexico, is a highly atypical language because it doesn't use any grammatical strategy to distinguish between questions and statements. That said, it's impossible to conclusively make the argument that English is or isn't weird because all the data needed to make this judgment isn't available. As several thousand languages haven't yet been added to the World Atlas of Language Structures, it can only be used to compare English with a small proportion of the estimated 7,000 languages in the world today. More language documentation is ultimately needed to give a better understanding of the world's amazing linguistic diversity. That segment was written by Adam Shambri, a reader in linguistics in the Department of English Language and Linguistics at the University of Birmingham. It was originally published in The Conversation and appears here through a Creative Commons license. 
Finally, I have a family-like story from Luke. Good day, Minyan. My name is Luke from Australia, calling with a family that I grew up with. My mother is Italian, and, and she didn't speak any Italian when she was a kid, and she only learned English once she sort of started school here in Australia. And so we got a lot of Italian words that she didn't know the English words for. And one of those was the word straccio. Straccio meaning like a rag, but not a, a dish rag necessarily, more like a rag that you use in the shower, a, like a body cloth. I, I actually don't know a great English word for it. After I was married, I remember you know, a couple of days later being in the shower and calling out to my new wife, hey, honey, will you get me the straccio? And she had no idea what I was talking about, and I didn't know how else to explain it except straccio. Eventually, we figured it out. Thanks. See you. Thanks, Luke. I was just talking to someone about the patterns I see in Familects the other day, and yours fits two patterns. One, I hear from people who have a word from a parent or grandparent who didn't speak English and used a word from their own language for something and passed it on to the rest of the family. And sometimes it gets passed down faithfully, but sometimes the pronunciation changes. And then two, often people don't know that their word is a word that only their family uses until they try to use it with someone outside the family and aren't able to be understood. Depending on how common the word is, that can happen in grade school or college, or in your case, after you're living with someone else, because how often do you talk about washcloths with someone? Not very often. Thanks again. If you want to call with your family word story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems, and that's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.